Hello there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The B-Side. We are a podcast for the Film Stage website. Here, we talk about movie stars, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the movies that they made with Mickey Rourke in between. My name is Dan Mecca, and as always, I am with podcast producer and best friend, best man at my wedding, Connor O'Donnell. Connor, how are you? I'm great, Dan. I'm ready. I'm ready for at least one time for this this podcast to not be bi-weekly. For now, it's going to be nightly. It's going to be nightly today and every day that you listen to this episode because yes. we're talking about Kira Knightley, the one and only, and we are joined by another one and only. His name is Joel Arnold. He is a writer in Los Angeles who performs and produces the D&D podcast and most recently the incredible you have to listen to an ineffable A Cats Movie podcast. He's our good friend who used to live in New York, and we met him doing movie trivia, like I think every single film podcast in the world. I think you even said that, Joel, on your last episode. Um, yeah. And what's up, man? How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, I've got the balm of the movie Cats to keep me, well, I, no, not really sane, sort of the appropriate level of deranged right now but also uh excited to talk about kira knightley movies tell us so before we jump into kira well tell us a little yeah. bit about the two podcasts that you you know produce and you know perform uh just so the wor- world knows about what you do yeah so i make a podcast called D and D, which is a uh, part of the ever-growing genre of comedy dungeons and dragons improvised podcasts and uh the twist with ours is that my friend who is the dm is also uh like a very very good amateur chef and like makes us a dinner themed to the action of the episode and uh we've integrated a mechanic where now we like make choices about sort of the adventures that we go on and you know it's a good mix of like heartfelt (laughs) sentimentality and fart jokes uh but we get to like choose different foods based on the quests and uh yeah we've been doing that for like two years now that's, that's awesome d and d that's something i i watched a late night clip of joe Man- manganello is that his name who's like a pittsburgh guy talk with stephen colbert about their love for that and i'm i'm gonna use that fuel to listen to that podcast i do love um your ineffable cats podcast and i've listened to the episodes that are currently available even as someone who has not yet watched the movie cats i well then i appreciate that the most and i hope maybe that well honestly i don't know are you sold at all to see cats having heard it well so here's my interesting and connor i don't know connor you have seen the movie cats yes Yes, and to my knowledge, and Joel and I were just talking about this off mic. I I still have yet to figure out whether or not I saw the what you know what people call the train wreck version or right. not, uh, because I saw it opening weekend when they announced that it was only going to be there. You know, they were quickly replacing it, and so I'm sure I must have seen whatever version it was, but. Uh, but other people that saw the movie after me also claim to have seen the same things that I saw. So I'm like, well, maybe, maybe there well, aren't that, two versions. And that gives weight. Well, doesn't that give weight to your theory, Joel? Right? You were saying that 
your conspiracy theory about this? Yeah, I honestly wonder whether the reviews were so bad, but bad in this special way where people were even just like trying to describe what this movie was and and couldn't on the grounds of regular movie reviews that right the the way this dropped is there was a, a supposedly a memo that went to exhibitors that they were going to be releasing this uh fixed version which i don't know that like a visual effects fix would actually help all the things that make this a train wreck but i wouldn't sure. put it past them to say like hey this is so bad you need to see it get into theaters now because i've seen it like I've seen it three times at three different theater chains. Even the Amazon Prime version, I think it's the one that I saw. It's yeah, like it's the Judy Dench wearing a wedding ring on her human hand cut. Right, 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 exactly. Right, and that exactly. was the that was like the visual signifier that went around the internet. Like this is what they were trying to fix or whatever. Um, yeah. Now it's funny to bring it back to Kira. Kira Knightley was in her own smaller version of Cats. Not too long ago um, that me and Connor briefly talked about in our holiday episode, she was in a movie called The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, um, <laughs> and she gives the most insane performance in the movie. I think I briefly talked about it uh, during the Mask of Zorro episode on the Film Stage show recently, um, and just as kind of an, just an in with our, our, t- our subject today. That um, I think me and Connor came away thinking that the movie itself feels like a fascinating failure, though her performance is is certainly a highlight. Right, Connor? Yeah, yeah. She's I think I think she's she seems like one of the only people in the movie in that movie. Have you seen that movie? The Nutcracker? I have not yet. I would have in retrospect swapped it for something like Berlin. I love you, which. uh, No. (laughs) Did you watch Berlin? I love you. I did. Oh my God, we got it. Including gotta, another Mickey Rourke. Oh God. Oh, he, true. His vignette is That's bonkers. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, her performance in the Nutcracker. Listen to the Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood. Listen to the. Um, sorry, the uh, the winter uh, holiday episode. But but um, it's her choices are so big, and it does feel like. And she we knows we'll what get, movie she's in. Yeah, and we'll get into yeah. this with with these four movies that we've picked, but but um, it feels like a performance that's totally different from anything else she has ever kind of offered up, which I sure. think is kind of cool. Um, so with all that being said, let me say that I love Kira. Uh, I have loved her since the Pride and Prejudice uh, 2005 movie with um, Tom from Succession himself as Mr. Darcy. <laughs> And I think she brings a unique star quality to every role. I think there's this idea that, you know, she gets this, you know, she's in a lot of period pictures and what have you. And that, you know, that's obviously, you know, a common and easy thing to put on her. But I think she's got, and this is, we can get into this. She's got like a sharp gentleness that feels limiting on its face but i actually think it's not limiting at all i think as we go through these movies we'll talk about that like she has different shades of this very specific thing that i think is so fascinating to watch like just as a performer and so today in my opinion um which i'm i'm sure we'll have disagreements we have i think we have basically good to great b-sides so we got (laughs) we got tony scott's domino Uh we got 2008's The Duchess. 
We got Mark Romanek's adaptation of Kazuo Ishiguro's novel, Never Let Me Go. And then we got the recent post-war drama, The Aftermath from 2019. Um, so, Joel. Which I think is our most recent B-side. Has to be, right? I, th- I think it is. I think it's the most recent B-side. Well, we're going to talk. We're going to talk Bloodshot soon, and that'll be our most <laughs> recent B-side. Um, but Joel, tell me, tell me how Kira came into your life. Were you watch? Were you a Bendit like Beckham person, or where did you first uh, see Kira in the movies? I wish I'd revisited Bendit like Beckham because I think that was my first experience with her, and I was like, oh, who's this? Really, you know, at the time, just like woman, I was like super crushing on. And uh, I was really happy as a fan of the uh, 1990s version, the the TV version of Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth uh, to see the Joe Wright version and just like fell in love with what she was doing there. And then to see her the next year in Pirates, I was like, okay, this like performer is like lively, magnetic. She can do so many interesting things. And so I was excited to talk about her here, but then I realized that I've kept up with some of her roles, but I haven't seen, I hadn't seen a lot of what she's been doing the past sort of 12 years. I think some of them are small enough that they've flown under the radar for me. Yeah, no, that's, it's true. And she's one of these people, um, I think we kind of talked about this, um, the name's going to escape me now. Oh, so when we we do these cinephile game nights, which we've talked about on this podcast before, um, uh, and basically we talked about an actor in one of our first uh game nights and it was um ewan mcgregor and we were like we were like while we were doing the filmography game we all realized how many movies he'd been in and i felt that kind of way revisiting kira knightley's career i was kind of like wow yeah she's been around she's only 35 right now she was born in 85 she's um from a you know a uk like uh, like a father who's an actor, I believe. And, and her mother was a and her playwright. Mother's a playwright right? And her yeah. mother wrote the what was the basis of a movie she made that could have been a B-side called The Edge of Love, which I've seen where it's I mean, like a... And to be clear, like she has, she does have like plenty of B-sides. Oh my like God. I mean like there London... Are, there are like, we could do a whole nother episode of four <laughs> other movies uh, that she was in. And like London Boulevard, you know, for example, yeah, which is counts. like William Mo- yeah. William Monaghan's directorial debut with Colin Farrell. That's a crazy B-side. Anyway, so what about, Connor, what about you? I mean, obviously we should say her like big... She becomes a movie star in, of course, uh, Joel mentioned 2003's Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. Like, so she breaks out with Bendit like Beckham where it's right. like, she's a newcomer. Who is this? This person's interesting. She does Pirates, which she actually thought was going to be like a, a failure. And like a lot of people, I and which I kind of remember, like I remember the teaser for that movie being like the, it does the bird's eye on the island and it's the shape of like a skull and crossbones or whatever and you're like what is this movie they're making a movie out of a theme park ride like okay whatever uh and so it is kind of fascinating to think about like not to segue but like or sidetrack but just the sheer craziness of that franchise existing as a now what five five part franchise or whatever it is it's so like great. it's crazy like yeah. like just that it came off of this thing because I do remember going to that theater, into that theater, sort of sight unseen, kind of being like, "Yeah, I guess well, I'll just see this movie with like my friends," and then we all just loved it, obviously, and everybody loved it and whatever. And so she sort of, with that, right, became a basically became a a, a 
you know, a marquee star kind of overnight, maybe not a movie star per se. It's not like she was suddenly like opening movies on her own, but you know, she was part well, of but, a, Yeah, know, she was the third lead in a gigantic blockbuster, right? Like, and, yeah. And she got, I mean, and then she, whether or not the movies hit after she got the role of Guinevere in Antoine Fuqua's King Arthur the next year, right? Like she yeah. got the role of Domino in, you know, 2005's Domino, Elizabeth Bennett. And so she, you know, I think for a moment got all the shots that you would get, you know, after sure. being in Pirates. I mean, the craziest thing about Pirates is that, you know, Johnny Depp taking the role. People were like, ah, you know, Johnny, he was the cool indie guy for so long and he finally took the money. There he goes. And then it was like the movie that got him an Oscar nomination, right. like catapulted him. People, you know, people love, you know, love the character. Yeah, his, two, his 2003 was like a, a huge thing, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it's so, I mean, it. you're right. I mean, it's crazy. Everybody thought Pirates of the Caribbean would be what then the Haunted Mansion with Eddie Murphy was, where mm-hmm. it was just kind of like, yeah. oh, no, yeah, not this. But it worked, at least for a couple of them. Um, all right, so, Kira, like we said, she is the daughter of kind of writers and actors and, you know, all of that. She's also in Love Actually in 03, we should say, in a smaller role, but important. Uh, obviously, that movie... Will never die. Um, I like that movie. A lot of people don't like it, um, uh, but I will defend it. And then, yeah, King Arthur is kind of the dead on arrival. Antoine Fuqua, like, kind of like, like, what? Well, this was like, um, what do you call this? It's like, uh, uh, sort of like revisionist, not revisionist history. It's like it was like it, gritty before gritty was yeah, a thing, right? right? No, it was like a hyper real. It was like right. they took the, the legend and they were like, okay, no, magic. let's let's try and make this. Yeah, let's try and make this as like hyper real as possible. Um, and I do remember, like, my vague recollection of that movie wasn't exactly liking it, but was a begrudging admiration for what they were trying to do with it like right like uh who is it that plays merlin um, um is it why, jude no 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 i got it here but while i looked that up david franzoni wrote the movie who wrote gladiator right so it shows oh, you exactly right, yeah. kind of the thought um so um uh, who Merlin is played by? Oh, I'm pulling it up. Stephen right Delane, now. who played uh, Stannis Baratheon oh, on right, Game right, of Thrones. Right, right, yeah, right. Delane. Yeah, that's like, right. and and he's like a druid, right? That's how they like paint Merlin. Kind of, it's like a he's like a druid mystic uh, type type. Yeah, deal. they I mean, really yeah. lean into like the Celts. I remember Kieran Knightley just covered in blue paint blue and paint. looking like yep. almost feral. Yeah, yeah. They basically dressed her in belts, like that's what <laughs> she basically wore. And that, that was, was and that was also the moment where, like, Clive Owen and Ion Gruffitt, it was like maybe these are the guys, maybe right, these are the guys. Because Fantastic Four yeah. was like a thing at the same yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What a time. The arts. What a time. Dude. The arts. Um, what a time. So also, also, you guys the remember arts. when there were movies in theaters? You guys remember <laughs> that? So all right. That will that leads us into our first movie, right? So 2005, this is peak Kira Knightley movie star, right? So she's in, um, like we said, she's in King Arthur in 04. It doesn't do well, but, you know, she's getting her shots. And 05 is a big year. She's in Pride and Prejudice. I believe she gets nominated for that. Around the same time, 
a little movie called Domino comes out, our first B-side directed by Tony Scott and based on the real life of Domino Harvey, who was a real-life bounty hunter and the daughter of actor Lawrence Harvey, who you probably know um, from the original Manchurian Candidate, right? So first things first, I, I'll just say this to get it out of the way. I love this movie. Um, if you look... Uh, if you look it up on my letterbox, I gave it five stars. I've seen it probably 20 wow. times. I love it. Uh, I didn't love it when I first saw it, probably like most people. Um, this period of Tony Scott's career is one that I hold great reverence for. Um, Spy Game is one of my favorite movies. Um, Deja Vu is one of my favorite movies. This is one. So, you know, Tony Scott, I've learned just even in revisiting this movie, um, is one of my favorite directors. I mean, he at least five. I have this list on my letterbox of my favorite films, and it's a list of about eight hundred movies. Um, and I, every movie that's on that list, I give five stars. And there's at least five Tony Scott films on that list. So this is one of them. It's obviously it did very badly. Um, it made twenty two million dollars on a fifty million dollar budget. So. I would I would wager it lost at least when you can count print advertising I would wager it lost at least 50 million if not more right um Richard Kelly wrote the script who you know from Donnie Darko and Southland Tales and the box and um yeah this is an insane movie this is like peak acid Tony Scott filmmaking uh Connor what what do you think about Domino so I saw that my relationship with this movie it, you know it was like it was 05 so it was like that time in my life where i was just like you know i was like with what money i had i was like buying some movies just sight unseen because i was just consuming you know whatever i could kind of thing um and i remember a friend recommend like another like you know aspiring filmmaker friend uh recommending this movie and so i was like yeah sure fuck it right like and um because this was this was after man on fire right yeah this is the year yeah. after man on fire yeah, like or like I, two it was like after. it was like almost like a trade that we did because i remember like i like recommended to him man on fire and he really liked it and he was like oh but have you seen domino and i was like i haven't because it didn't really look great but i'll watch it and so i like bought it sight unseen watched it and i and it was one of those things where like you know I went into it really kind of going to bat for it because it was something I just spent like $20 on to like own forever. And so I was like, yeah, okay, this has things, but I really kind of came out of it, not really liking it. And then it wasn't until college that you saw that I had it in my DVD collection and you're like, can I borrow this? I'm going to rewatch this. And and I remember like you took it, you watched it. You were like, oh, I really liked it. And, and so I was like, I guess I got to rewatch this thing. Okay. And I rewatched it. And again, it's like, and, you know, I liked it more because you had talked about all the reasons you liked it. And so I was kind of like, I guess I can see that. And I, it is one of those movies. Like I, I've rewatched it maybe since that incident, maybe t twice. And this is one of them. Right. And, and each time I'm like, no, I, I get it. Like there are things to like, but I, uh, there's, this movie is like one or two devices too confusing. Right. Like, like there's like just too much salt and pepper on it. Like, 
in a, in a way that and it's not even the style of it like i love i actually love the style of the movie i love the way it's cut i love the way it's shot i love the way it feels uh even amongst tony scott movies there's just no other movie that feels like it i'm so happy it exists um in that regard but it it the way it chooses to structure itself uh and deliver information to you is just a it's like a little it it feels like it's being clever but to me it just feels messy and and it's a way in, in a way that like with every piece of information they reveal you're like there was no not even for like emotional reasons or anything like that there's certain there's certain information that gets hidden from you that you're like you could have just told me that at the time right like it it it, it wouldn't have really affected the movie so it just kind of i think it gets a, in its way a little bit um but um but i do yeah i I probably less so than you, Dan, but I do, I would generally say I like this movie. Like I, you know, if, if I was talking to the right person, I would recommend it. All right, Joel, what do we think, Joel? I think I am not the right person because I, <laughs> I might, I might have hated it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think his style isn't my general cup of tea. Uh, you know, the oversaturated frenetic, uh, I found a little bit like distancing and I, really wanted to connect to domino more as a character but yeah I, I felt like dirty watching it like closed into this like box of of grime and sweat so i think sure. if that's the way you want to feel then it was effective <laughs> right, uh, right but i think yeah i think that the plotting is convoluted and i wish it were less about the plotting and more uh you know in action character study when i think it's a movie that's around Domino as a character, but she's not uh, sort of driving it, or we don't see her driving it as much as I would have liked. She's not really an act. Yeah, she's not really like an active force in the movie. She's sort yeah. of just re reactionary kind of. Yeah, I mean, so basically just to kind of set it a little bit, and we don't really need to, I don't think for this one we need to really get into the nitty gritty of the plot, honestly, because it is. I, I mean, could could you even? I mean, that's I, I, I mean. almost I mean, dare you. Like, I I don't even think I could. There was a time when I thought a mob boss had inadvertently killed his son, but that turned out not to be true, or was it? I don't remember. Yeah. Well, so yeah, so I would fully admit, as much as I love the movie, yeah, I mean, so I rewatched it with commentary uh, for this podcast. Uh, and it was like a Tony Scott, Richard Kelly, you know, separate tracks, but cut to the same, you know, commentary um, situation. And the craziest thing about one of the craziest things you learn in the commentary is how much of it kind of is true. Not necessarily the plot, but like the Ed Mosby character, character which is basically the make your work plays a character named Ed Mosby, who's a bounty hunter who essentially becomes um domino's mentor of sorts and then choco who's played by edgar ramirez who i think we can all agree incredibly sexy in this movie edgar and, edgar and great ramirez. he actually he's my uh he's my outside of maybe christopher walken he's my favorite performance <laughs> in the movie right yeah he is very good so um domino is like we said before the um daughter of lawrence harvey who is a famously troubled you know uh movie star and Domino herself was troubled in her own way. Sadly, she passed away before this movie actually even got released. Um, there's kind of an RIP shout out to her at the end of, of the movie. Um, and 
she, you know, rejected fame ultimately and kind of went into this, you know, what you, what you were saying, Joel, like this, like underworld of like bounty hunters and, you know, what have, you know, other people and, you know, not, you know, not the people she grew up with, let's say. And um, in a way, in that way, it is kind of a biopic, but then there's this whole other kind of scheme happening on the side involving Monique and involving a million Delroy other Lindo yeah Delroy and, Lindo yeah. and a, like just a Macy Gray like and um a plot get, kickstarted entirely I think by uh like a, an extended Jerry Springer clip exactly and yeah. like you get you get like Brian Austin Green and Ian Ziering um from Beverly Hills 90210 playing themselves in this like reality show produced by Christopher Walken and Mita Savari is her is his assistant but I will say the reality show is like weirdly forward thinking because there are literally shows like that now. So that's kind of yeah. interesting. And um, yeah, like Jacqueline Bissett plays Domino's mother. You know what I mean? Like that, which is crazy. And uh, crazy enough is Tony Scott in the commentary actually talks about how he has known Jacqueline Bissett for a long time. And Jackie Bissett was friends with Domino's mother in real life. So like right. was friends with Sophie Wynn. Right. So it just, it is, that's what I, the weirdest part about listening to the commentary was how much of this is like exists in a real place. Like yeah, Choco is a real guy, like all this stuff. Anyway. Yeah. So without, we don't need to go into the plot of it, but I will say like, you can tell why Keira Knightley makes this movie, right? This is so. Oh, a, thousand, a thousand percent. Yeah. This is so like, again, this is not Elizabeth Swan. This is not the soccer player from Ben like I mean, This uh, is not Elizabeth Bennett, right? The move that she makes is literally the move that Domino makes, right? It's literally her being like, okay, cool. Like, I have this clout. Like, let me. And and I, and I will say, like, kudos to her. Like, I, I, I feel like anybody in their right mind in 05 would have done the exact same thing. If you have Tony Scott, this, like, fascinating, fun, interesting auteur come at you and, like, and is like, hey, I, I want you for this part. Um, which, I, I mean, to what I found online that's basically what happened like they didn't really have anybody that they could find for the role this movie was basically like in development forever and then they did, they couldn't really find anybody for the role and tony scott was like circling it and then and then basically kira knightley kind of sp sprung up um i what i do think i've always thought this was kind of funny so at the end of the movie uh they do they they show you uh domino harvey Right. And I always thought it was kind of funny that Kira Knightley looks more like Lawrence Harvey than Domino Harvey does. Like, yeah, that's they, funny. they like it's it's such fascinating casting to me, because like if you were to take if you were to just sight unseen, show me Kira Knightley and a picture of Lawrence Harvey, it'd be like, she's that dude's daughter. I'd be like, yeah, 100 percent. She looks just like him with like a wig on. Uh it's just, I just always thought that was super fascinating, but, um, but yeah, I think she's like quite good in this movie. I think she, like, I think she, she does everything that's asked of her. I think she shows up. I do think the character is like a little bit of a toughie, um, only because like, there's just, I, I was watching it. I was watching it with my fiance and like, she, there was the moment there's a moment in an alley where she basically uh, she basically stops 
Mickey Rourke and Edgar Ramirez in their tracks after they're trying to swindle a bunch of people out of money for this bounty hunting seminar they paid for. And she stops them in their tracks and, uh, you know, basically says, like, I want to join you. I want to be a bounty hunter. Right. And then, like, not reluctantly, not so reluctantly, Mickey Rourke agrees, but he asks her why. And she's like, I just want to have a little fun. Where the fuck do you think you're going? Those people paid for a seminar. You get all fucking up my windshield. I want want a job. Jesus fucking Christ, lady. Everybody wants a goddamn job. What makes you think you can do this one, huh? I've been training since I was 12. Knives, guns, throwing stars, you name it, I can fight with it. I'm a hard worker, I'm a hard worker, and a fast learner. Nothing scares me. I'm not afraid to die. Why would a delicate little thing like you want to be a goddamn bounty hunter? I want to have a little fun. We were watching that scene and, and like pretty pretty was just like, oh, God, I hate people like her. And it's like, yeah, like I, that mo- as a character motivation, like that's uh, it sucks. Like even if it's I mean, it might be true, frankly, like I don't I, who's just I don't know. But it is just like so shallow and like so like, come on, like what? Like so you're just going to be a bounty hunter because you need kicks like what? OK, all right. Like, yeah, I, you know, I which think like, reading. Look, it happened, I guess. So like, I, you know, I, I, it's not that I don't believe it. It's just that like, it's tough to get behind a character like that. I think. Yeah. In reading about, I was curious about the real life Domino Harvey and the differences and the movie's approach. And I think that was part of her motivation. I think as a bounty hunter, she pulled in like 30 to $40,000 a year and expressed that she was in it for, the excitement rather than the money or anything else and i i think that's it's really interesting like uh, this you know sort of privileged uh position she comes from the expected route of someone rebelling against their parents and society's expectation it's not to become a bounty hunter in southern california so i i wish that we was were able to see just a little more and then that kira knightley was able to play a little more sort of this like the complex genesis that leads to these complex like emotions because she's got this anger and bravado this like need to take risks and i think maybe even some abandonment issues but i felt like some within the way i really wanted to connect it was more kind of one note and i wish that we had gotten a little bit more of uh her interiority and I, I, I felt like maybe the most uh, we got that was her scene or I guess her series of scenes in the framing device with uh, Lucy Liu, where that exchange, I think, was the most stabilizing, where it's sort of not like it's it's hard to remember individual scenes because it's all sort of uh, this chaotic blur. Uh, but right. those I can feel like she's up against. Uh, a personality and there's interplay that shows who she is there yeah and apparently um according to the commentary which i know i keep referencing the hedge you live tells you die thing 
which is repeated the whole movie, was like a real thing that Domino Harvey like kind of lived by wow. and believed. And let me just correct myself. Um, Jackie Bissett played Domino's mother. Domino's mother in real life's name is Pauline Stone. They obviously changed, I think, most names other than Domino's for the movie. Um, but that did voice, you... though, too, uh, that says heads you live, tails you die is Domino Harvey. Is that right? OK. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not Kira Knightley saying it like because it's all, you, know, you never see her say it. You only uh, it's only in like sort of voiceover uh, type situations. And it's kind of like echoey and stuff. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's Domino Harvey saying it, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. I mean, Joel, did you like Kira Knightley in the movie or what did you think about her like? what do you think about her performance i'm just curious in when i watched it in my head i think that i assumed that this had been pretty close after bend it like beckham because i think the way that she like deploys her the way that she shows her charisma and intelligence in a role like to have multiple things going on at once on her face i assumed that it was an early role but then uh I learned that she filmed it four days after Pride and Prejudice. So I, I think, I don't know, I struggled with that. And I wondered, because I, I, loving Keira Knightley, I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to falter for it. But I wonder if that <laughs> script and the direction just didn't give her enough kind of to latch onto. But I, I was very impressed that she, it looked like she really trained to use the nunchucks and butterfly knife uh, pretty expertly. Uh, but yeah, I think that sort of there wasn't maybe enough, uh, because I, I can pin her down sometimes. Like sometimes she's the smartest person in the room. Uh, sometimes she's just seeking thrills, but I think the movie couldn't decide which, which was the primary motivating factor. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things that I think we should just point out. I think we can all agree. It's cool that the mobster has a underwater lair with so you can take phone calls i think that was cool um this has i mean though i love this movie uh, is this the third best tony scott mexican standoff shootout (laughs) or because you have enemy of the state in the restaurant and true romance you have true romance which is probably got to be the best one right of course and then this is had this one has to be better than enemy of the state right because this one well, takes place at the top of the is it the stratosphere yeah and, and, I, and i mean this Vegas? one's this one i would say is better because it's like more visually interesting than the one in enemy of the state and it's yeah, they you just know like so it's a little more spe- it's right. a little more spectacular right like they're like this this standoff has a helicopter as part of it right yeah. You know, so like, and a bomb, right? Like, and, I don't and know. You get, so, Tom, you get Tom Waits in the desert before. Yeah. Oh, there, God. I, I, kinda, I love that Tom Waits performance. There were things I enjoyed. I don't want to be too hard in this movie because Tom Waits showing up it, out of nowhere when they're just accidentally high on mescaline to just like teach them, guide them was was pretty great. As And I, I also really, really laughed at when they get the message to remove the right arm and they're like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, there's I mean, there are a couple. I think that's the that's the part of me that would recommend this movie to people is there. Mm-hmm. This movie is 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 bananas. Right. And so like uh, it, if you're going like I would never tell somebody going into it like, oh, it's sort of like, you know, in that vein of true romance, because it kind of is right. Like it's like a ro- it's like a it's like an out there uh, road fantasy kind of right. Uh 
with a lot of moving parts and a lot of players. So it's it's I mean, I feel like even outside of the Mexican standoff at the end, it is the most similar to true romance of any of Tony Scott's movies, I would argue, um, given like the nature of how it's sort of structured and all that um, and all the uh, the ensemble cast and whatnot. But the. I feel like there is fun in the chaos. Like, like you said, Joel, like you do get these bits of things. And I think that's the stuff that keeps the movie going. Cause you're just like, what even is this? And I think if you, if you listener decide to watch this movie and you haven't seen it, like if you can put aside trying to really unpack like the con that's unfolding before you or anything like that, cause it's not real. I mean, it's like, even if it's possible, it's not really worth it. Um, and just sort of, take the movie as it comes at you uh i think it's pretty enjoyable i would say like so richard kelly talks about being in the desert rewriting lines for tom waits like does that not sound like the like so great to be able to do that <laughs> like just like tom waits in character in the desert and you're the screenwriter because that's another cool thing i mean just to mention like Richard Kelly screenwriters don't always get, to, I mean, Brian Koppelman said this when we had him, you know, on the podcast, like screenwriters don't always get to be on sets, right? You write a script and a lot of times you kind of, you know, the director goes with his crew or, or her crew and makes it. And, um, I just love that idea of like Richard Kelly with like a notebook being like, all right, so Tom, what about this? What, you know what I mean? Like, but, um, I, yeah, I mean, obviously I would recommend it. Um, there are things to, kind of definitely love about it i mean the film stock used they talk about this also in the commentary like and this is pervasive in stuff like man on fire and deja vu as well uh, especially man on fire where you know he would basically film um and expose it where like what you're watching like like for example if you watch in this movie there's this like pool party and the exposure of some of the film, it like burns up essentially, like when you're watching it, right? So when we talk about like the acid style, right? That's what people I think are referencing a lot of times. That's literally just, that's that's not a post edit. That is an edit, that's a celluloid edit, right? So like, that's really cool. Like that's physical media, like getting exposed in some degree and that being in the final product of the movie right so all of this is to say this got released by a major movie right. studio which i think yeah. is so cool like you yeah. know five it made 10 million dollars domestic you know i think like <laughs> people were just like oh god like yeah. yeah quick quickly tony get denzel back and make a movie about a time traveling car right right, you know, like, right. You know. but, no no, no. Um, i mean that's a that's a fair point dan i think that's i think that's at the heart of what makes me like this movie too is just that like yeah, I don't know. I'm just happy it exists. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, I'm I'm happy all of Tony Scott's movies existed, right? Like I I of course, yeah. will be the first person to tell you that I definitely undervalued him while he was alive. Um there were some movies of his that were definitely like all-timers for me, but like his filmography as a whole, I I dismissed for a long time. Right. Um and yeah, and I do think a movie like this is sort of exemplary of that, even if it's not his best movie. It's like exemplary of the kind of filmmakers you wish were still given a boatload of money to like do the things that they want to do on film. Yeah. I and mean, I, so Joel, 
Joe, uh, just so you're saying Tony Tony Scott's not not your immediate cup of tea, right? Like that style. I'm just curious. Are there any like so the Hunger, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop Two, Revenge, Days of Thunder, The Last oh, Boy Revenge Scout, is so, Revenge is so good, True Romance, Crimson Tide, The Fan, Enemy of the State, Spy Game, Man on Fire, Domino, Deja Vu, The Taking of Pelham, One Two Three Remake, Unstoppable. Those are the movies. Are those are there any that stand out? Just in your memory? I feel like I've only seen his worst ones, which <laughs> could be why. Because I'm when I think of uh, his filmography, I think of my bad experiences with taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Right, and, of course. Uh, I, no, I think at the time I did like Enemy of the State. But yeah, True yeah, Romance, that's I haven't ones. seen. Uh, Days of Thunder. Uh, yeah, I'm even curious about deja vu yeah i think that i liked this enough that were i not watching it specifically for here nightly and i do appreciate that it's so outside of the rest of her like typical genres totally. that and that she's trying something so different like i appreciate that that is a cool risk but i think watching it for her and being a little bit disappointed in her not being able to bring kind of all of her gifts that I wouldn't, I think I would, I judge the movie on a sort of a different scale, but I'm open to seeing more Tony Scott. I mean, yeah, he man. delivered for, for me, what is uh, a better performance from Ian Ziering than in any Sharknado. There you go. That's, tr that's actually true. Ian Ziering is, is great in Domino. Um, uh, sorry, Connor, go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, I think I was just going to say, I, I mean, I, did do you guys have anything else you want to say before no. we, we move on? Let's go into prime. Let's go into prime Kira doing period Anglophile dramas, dude. Um, I so uh, just to be perfectly frank, when we taught when you mentioned Kira, Joel, uh -huh. I as I'm sure Dan's brain lit up with Domino. He was like, "Cool, we're talking about Domino. I don't care what else we talk about. We're talking about Domino." You know uh, it. This this was the one for me that I was like, I don't even know if this technically counts as a B side. I don't care. We're oh, talking about it. I think yeah. I think it I think it does. But um, I the reason I I would you you could maybe argue it doesn't is I feel like when I have seen people discuss or bring up this movie i do think it's generally well liked which again doesn't mean it's not a b-side but and, uh, you are right because it it did i think make money as well yeah right? like yeah. cost 13 or so million give or take pounds or dollars and it made 43 worldwide is what i'm seeing so it's like which like for a movie like this is, it's that's yeah you can't is, you can't complain can't, about that yeah exactly so you know, you can yell at me, listener, if you don't think this is a B-side, but whatever. We're talking about it. We're talking about The Duchess. And just to be clear, yeah, The Duchess. Thank you. The Duchess from 2008, directed by Saul Dib. Dib, right? Yep. Dibby Dib. Yep. Dib, Dib, Dib. Uh, yep. And it, uh, it basically, it's based on a, uh, a novel. Um, it is based on Georgiana Duchess of Devonshire by Amanda yeah. Foreman. Yep. Jo okay. So I, okay. I kept wanting to say Georgiana, but they say Georgina. Well, and then he, so Ralph or, Fiennes or is that just calls, like an, an accent thing? I think it was an accent thing. And you know, obviously, um, Ralph Fiennes, Ray Fiennes calls her G a lot of the right. time. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it was something that definitely like threw me off. I was like, oh, okay. Because that's actually, so that's my mother's uh, middle name. And, Interesting. But she, said, she says Georgiana. And so it just like threw me off because they're all saying Georgiana. Anyway, uh, she plays the Duchess of Devonshire. Um, and essentially the movie just chronicles like her personal life, her life in politics, uh, how she sort of kind of broke from the fold to even get involved in politics, which at the time was sort of crazy and unheard of. Um, she is married to Ray Fiennes in the movie at the very beginning of the movie. Um, she's married off to him. Um, he's the Duke of Devonshire and, um, essentially i mean that's basically it right it's like a it's a it's a relatively standard uh well yeah the whole movie is how the duke needs a son he needs an heir and she just keeps popping out girls that's like yeah that's it's essentially a big the, problem yeah. you know it's like you and, know and it becomes this you know a broader examination of of just fucking how shitty it was for women uh in that time i mean that's basically that's basically kind of what the what the thesis of the movie boils down to. Um, yeah, I mean, she, while she, she tries to kind of reconcile her her shitty lot in society, right. uh, obviously despite the title and the wealth and all that, but her her shitty lot in society under the patriarchy, while also you know like loving her children and being a mother and having to kind of reconcile those two and, things. Yeah, and she's like kind of she was a fashion icon of her time. Um, and this is in real life and the movie portrays this. Uh, mm -hmm. she was, she was born 1757. She died 1806. Like Connor said, she kind of broke from the Duke later on and it like fucked everything up for her. And it, it was kind of a, ultimately a, a bit of a sad end for her, but she's kind of in a way a feminist at a time when there wasn't a word for that. Right. That's kind of sure. what the movie is essentially getting at, which I think is interesting. You have a Haley Atwell also in this, who I love uh, playing. They're also woman. very good in it. Yeah. A woman called yeah. Bess uh, who becomes uh, the Duchess's friend and then it gets more complicated. But yeah, I mean, one of the, yeah, the most interesting thing about this movie is Charlotte Rampling, who is in our next movie. Um, yep basically is Kira Knightley's mother uh, marries her off to the Duke and Kira at 17 years old, the Duchess goes in wide eyed and optimistic and is just subjected to every form of both physical and psychological abuse by this dude who, and let's just say Ray Vines. I mean, what, a performer it's like he could be voldemort he could be this guy he could romance j-lo in the made in manhattan <laughs> he could romance Kristen scott thomas with planes and english patient get all burned up and still be charming i mean this guy can do it all um he is yeah he is um a a, a wonderfully specific kind of monster in this movie yeah his, i was his so mad that like <laughs> I no, say, I'm so mad that like him shirtless in this movie, pretty hot. But meanwhile, he's playing this like specific type, like boring, humorless, like has sort of a resting dumb face, but is just so uncaring and and cruel. Uh, also uh, uh, hypocritical, cowardly, but like sure, sure. very... Like he plays in a way that's like very normal. Like this is a exceedingly 
boringly normal person for the time. No, and and like frighteningly real. Like that's like that's the thing about I think his performance in this role that I thought was like the most interesting is I'm like, oh my god, like I know people who are like that on the surface. So like, is that what some of those people are like underneath the surface? Are they just like sociopaths that are just like you know because he's not he's it's not you know it's it, obviously like like schindler's list and voldemort it is not right like it's not like this maniacal form of evil it is this like brewing just deep-seated unchanging unyielding like stationary form of evil that is uh horrifying and fascinating to watch someone try and portray quite well, effectively on screen <laughs> and 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 i will say um this movie, in by my estimation, does not uh, achieve the heights of something like Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice or even our third movie, uh, Never Let Me Go. But um, what it's trying to achieve is, like we're talking about with the Ray Vines character, is this is a man who's stuck in his ways, and he's stuck in the ways of the world that he's been brought up in, right? To the point where he, he in his... His minuscule moments of being a human, he like tries to convey that and it's it means nothing. But there's this sense that he is himself trapped and it's not an excuse at all. It's just an observation. Yeah. Um, the One of the best and most horrifying moments of the whole movie is, and I suppose this is a bit of a spoiler, when things go real bad, there is a marital rape that happens, right? In which Ray finds rapes Ugh. his wife, Keira Knightley. And we hear her screams and it cuts from the bedroom to all the people in the house, all the servants, all the cooks and the children who are there, you know, you know, Haley Atwell's there. And they're all here. They can all hear what's happening and they're all standing there doing nothing. And it's like, it's chilling. Th- that's why you make the movie, right? Because that moment, like when I rewatched this, because this was another one of these movies. I watched it whenever it came out in 08 and I remembered liking it and I haven't watched it since. And when that scene happened on this rewatch, I was like, oh, that's, oh, you know, you just like gasp, like, because that's. I I forgot how bad he was, uh, meaning like evil. Like I had seen this movie uh, for the first time, I think like back in like 2010, uh, like, I think it was like on TV or something and a friend and I watched it and um, just shows you where I was in 2010. I think like the NFL playoffs were going on or something like that. And it was like we could watch that or now nah, we're going to we'll put we're going to put on the Duchess. Um, it's like, but, bro, bring those beers over here. Let's turn on the Duchess. It, I think it was actually even kind of that thing. Like, I remember going over this friend's house with the intention of watching the playoffs. And then we were like, oh, the Duchess is on. Fuck yeah. Uh, and so we watched that instead. <laughs> we watched the Duchess instead. Um, but no, but like I watching this movie like you know for the first like 15 minutes 20 minutes or so i was kind of like oh maybe he's like not as bad maybe he's like a little more interestingly complicated than i remember him being and then like that scene happened and i was like oh no no oh 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 no like he's a monster yeah i had only seen this uh, a couple of months ago but just looking over my notes uh today i was like freshly enraged because it, it, the movie kind of works like a comedy sketch in some horrifying way where yeah, you're watching I mean, him like I think even escalate. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Like it's just like the indignities and humiliations that uh, he forces on her. Like he just doesn't care for her. Like wants uh, a son only um, like wantonly 
conducts affairs uh even like you know of, of course like the physical abuse but is fathering like a bastard and expects her to take care of the child uh yeah. and then what happens with her uh her friendships and her political activism like in a way that's like you said not maniacal just exceedingly of the time and of the system that he's a part of uh just exercising control and i think uh it's just a, a it leads to a punishing and uh sad place and one that's i found uh later when i watched Anna Karenina, very similar to the conflict that she faces uh, in yeah. that movie. Yeah, they're very, they're similar. They are similar movies. Big, actually, quick shout out to Anna Karenina. That movie is uh, awesome, and I love it. Now, which um, which Joe Wright, Kira Knightley starring adaptation of a literary classic do we like more? I'm curious. I would go Anna. I would go Anna Karenina. What about Ooh. you, Joel? Um, I would go Atonement. Oh, 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 God. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I forgot about it. <laughs> yeah, dude. Trilogy. <laughs> the, the, Joe, um, the right nightly. Trilogy. Wow. That really threw a wrench into my whole thing. So quick thing about atonement. I've, I don't know if I've said this on, on the, the podcast. I think we all try to write Joel. I th- think you're probably more successful than either me or Connor in that respect. But but um, I think we can all relate to this. Um, when I read Ian McEwing's book, Atonement. I had that thing that I don't think you always come across with. I think it's relatively rare where I would read sentences in that book. It was the first Ian McEwan book I had read and I've read more since, but I remember stopping reading and closing the book and going like, fuck, I will never think of a sentence that good. Like he writes in a way where, you know what I mean? Like you'll read things and you'll watch things. and You'll be like, wow, that's great writing. But like, I don't know. You like convince yourself you could get to a, a place that's comparable. Like even Quentin Tarantino, like I could never write like him, but I would never want to right? like, that's just not the way my brain works. But Ian McEwen, it felt like he was writing sentences that I wanted to write and doing it better than I'd ever thought to do. And the beauty of atonement, the movie is it like really captures that feeling. I think like that is a great movie. Wow. Um, yeah, now I don't know. I was going to say Pride and Prejudice. Now I don't know. Let no, me say, gotta, let me say Pride and, for me. Well, let me say Pride and Prejudice so we all have different answers. So Anna, sure. Atonement, and Pride. There yeah. you go. I think wow. what it is about Anna Karenina uh, that really – I mean, it's. I think it's just the way he decides to like really mess with like the visual storytelling of that movie um, in a way that I think is fascinating. And it, it's not – he manages to do it in a way that is not for – kitsch's sake or style's sake or anything like that it's all in service of the narrative um which i think is not always an easy thing for people to keep track of you know filmmakers to keep track of if they're trying to do something that's like visually interesting or sumptuous um but uh yeah the only thing i don't like about anna karen and, I'll, and this is the last thing i'll say about it is that i just refuse to believe there's a world where someone chooses aaron taylor johnson over jude law like even jude law in that movie like i know that they make jude law like super shitty and whatever but like i just i don't know i have a, a general uh, ongoing dislike of aaron taylor johnson that I, I don't think I'll i ever agree i was kind of uh i was kind of on weirdly i like that movie a lot but i was on his side i mean he's very He's very severe, but he expresses like he's nothing compared to uh, Ray Fiennes. Uh, right, Duke. he's not. 
a monster. Yeah, he expresses like, hey, I sort of see this interest you may be having in another man. Please don't do that. It would embarrass us. It wouldn't be good. Um, you wouldn't <laughs> right, be able to right. see your kids. And just like <laughs> has the boundary, <laughs> but doesn't do anything worse than that. And and yeah, even with that like kind of gross beard and the, the priest clothing, he's still... Or maybe because of the priest clothing. I don't know. He's still pretty attractive. <laughs> it's pre-pope. Yeah. It's pre. He was leaning into the into the. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was getting young. He was he was, he was getting young to play that pope. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, but anyway, back back to right. uh, the Duchess. Now, now I just find myself thinking about atonement. But no, the Duchess. Yeah. So I. But it's, it's funny context, right? Because the Duchess is the other one of those movies, right? I mean, that's what's funny. It's yeah. like. You know, it was in a flop. It did okay. Got a costume design nomination, right? I think it was, it's okay. It was decently reviewed. I think has two people that were in Captain America. Exactly. The first Avenger in it. So exactly. there's that. It's, you know, cur- currently, um, currently on Netflix, I would encourage a watch. I mean, it's a pretty interesting, I think, look, I'm I consider myself a pretty big Anglophile like I really like that stuff I like Jane Austen I like you know the the Jane Eyre uh the Kara Fukunaga Jane Eyre adaptation is a, a favorite movie of mine right like I really you liked, you liked Emma right you liked the new Emma I like the new Emma yeah. oh um, I love the new Emma you know I like the new Emma more than the Gwyneth Emma I don't know how you feel yeah, about I that would, Joel. I would agree but yeah I um, like Clueless more than both of them though <laughs> yeah yeah i guess that's still that still holds true um but yeah i would encourage people to see this out i think it's I, I like i guess my point is simply i like when movies that are set in you know this english costume drama scenario i mean take this uh, exploratory look at you know what, what what was feminism back then right and it's like interesting how trapped she is but how she does she makes this incredibly hard choice that the movie really does not shy away from um and weirdly this is going to sound funny um i kind of wish there was more of a focus on the fashion though because when you like read about what an icon she was i do think that's kind of interesting in its own right and just a fun fact that they use for the promotion of this movie that was a little bit controversial the duchess of devonshire is the great 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 aunt of princess diana oh i didn't know that so their kind of fates you know as these lower royals who are thrust into fame and ultimate tragedy is a weird parallel between them you know especially since they're related there's um there's a great just quick shout out there's a a really good scene if you just want like a little sort of taste of kind of and it comes early in the movie but uh, just a taste of like what she kind of reveals herself to be capable of. Uh, there's a great scene, little kind of uh, tit for tat with um, Simon McBurney, who plays uh, Charles Fox, who's a politician in the party that's backed by the Duke of Devonshire. And they're at a dinner that the Duke walks out of because he's just bored to tears by it. So she's sort of left there to hold court, as it were. And... Um, she basically kind of, you know, gives her two cents sort of uh, unsolicited, right, about about the goings on. Excellent speech, Mr. Fox. I thank you. It is always easier to address a congregation of friends, particularly when those friends are drunk. And how did the Duchess find Mr. Fox's speech? 
I must confess, I am not yet at ease with political speeches. Their very form tends to obstruct my view of their actual meaning, if such there be. In which particular section of the speech did the message elude your grace? Well, I have great sympathy with your sentiments in general, but I fail to fully comprehend how far we, the Whig Party, that is, are fully committed to the concept of freedom. We intend to extend the vote. To all men? Oh, heavens, no. But certainly to more men. Freedom in moderation. Freedom in moderation? Precisely. I'm sure you are full of the best intentions, Mr Fox. But I dare say I would not spend my vote, if I had it, of course, on so vague a statement. One is either free or one is not. The concept of freedom is an absolute. After all, one cannot be moderately dead, or moderately loved, or moderately free. It must always remain a matter of either or. And it's a great little scene just because it's like a nice, quick in. I, I remember just watching it the other night and really liking it because I was like, oh, just what a nice... And, you know, again, who knows if any – obviously, how could you know if any conversation like that ever took place? But from just a screenwriting standpoint, I loved it as just a very quick, like, here's who this person, like, actually is and here's the way that she thinks about things. And and um, it's such a great, I think, moment in stark contrast to later in the movie when she finally kind of, like, unloads on Ray Fiennes because – she just and she like says to him like you just you took like the one thing that was mine right like you can't let me have anything yeah and uh yeah i don't know i i think she is probably the best in this movie of the four movies i think it's probably the best performance Oh, interesting. Um, of the four we're talking about? I think I think so. I might change my mind in like, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. But um, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think it's probably her best performance. And I, I it, it, you know, it's tough to do that because it does pigeonhole her into the thing that people pigeonhole her in, which is the Pride and Prejudice and the, you know, Anna Karenina. Um, but um, it's like but I, I always say, it's like I always say, dude, heads you live, tails you die, you know? Of course, of course. I think it also um, gives her the the fullest uh, character to portray. Um, I even think that yeah, Anna Karenina like uh, it's so focused on her romantic relationships, and this is kind of a fully realized person with you know, like you said, the political uh, passion and the ability to uh, exert what influence she can through uh, through society, having a, a social life, having influence in fashion. Like she became a figure. Uh, in history and in this movie on on her own and i think that was exciting to see Kieran knightley be able to play you know a role as a mother and a wife and even in this period context all of these uh avenues for this character and, and I, just I, I, go ahead connor no no no. i was just gonna say you mentioned like the those different sort of facets that she plays like and i i I, I think that she's believable in all of them, which is like a credit to her. You know, like I believe her as a mother. I believe her as the sort of like captive wife. I believe her as the, you know, social sort of, uh, you know, leader, whatever you want to call her, um, social icon. Right. Um, and I think she, she does all of it really well. So, um, yeah. And I'll just quickly shout out before we move on to uh, Never Let Me Go. There's a 2018 movie called Colette, uh, directed by Wash Westmoreland, um, that kind of, it stars Keira Knightley, kind of tackles 
like semi similar territory. She plays um, a French writer at the end of the 19th century who her husband's Dominic West. And it's kind of this whole thing about she writes things. He takes credit. Basically it becomes this thing about, you know, gender roles and affairs and whatnot. So it's, you know, obviously set a different place and, you know, a century later, but she is, I do admire how she kind of, even when she goes back in time, she's tackling that commentary, I think in an interesting way. Um, Colette's not as good as the Duchess, I wouldn't say, but it, but it's certainly worth your time. So definitely give that a look if you get a chance. Um, and now look, this is definitely, I will say without a doubt, this third movie is my favorite of the four. Um, yeah. Never Let Me Go, yeah. directed by Mark Romanek, uh, like we said before. Um, look, I love this movie. Um, I, I'll i just start, I'll say that. Um, it's, and maybe Joel, if you want to tell us what it's about, I'll just simply say like, um, when I went to rewatch this, I logged in on my letterbox and I saw that I had given it five stars and I was like, wait, did I like this movie that much? And as I was watching it, I I was being skeptical of my own credo, my own whatever, 10 years ago. And I was weeping by the end. And that mm-hmm. Rachel Portman, <laughs> that yearning Rachel Portman score, who also, by the way, did the score for The Duchess. Um, this score, and maybe Connor, if you'll do us the favor, do us the, uh, the honor of putting in a little bit of the score right here. And now, now I am certainly weeping. It's, I can't, I don't even know how to describe it. it I, I love these three performances. I love the score. I love the directions. Uh, direct, uh, sorry, the direction. Joel, you, if would you mind telling us what is this movie about? Yeah, there's not really a way to talk about this movie without spoiling it, right? Well, we can spoil what who like what they are. Right, right, like the general the general conceit of the movie. Okay. Yeah. This, right. yeah, yeah. this is not, this that's is, not really a spoiler. Right? This is okay. the good version of the islands. <laughs> <laughs> that's so. That's not hundred percent true. I got For really sure. strong. I'll <laughs> let you talk about it first, Joel. But I got really strong Gattaca vibes from this movie. Um, yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know. But anyway, sorry, Joel. Go on. Why don't you tell us what Never Let Me Go was about? Yeah. So I had completely forgotten that. Until I, I saw this when it came out, and then I saw it uh, today. I forgot that there was a title card at the beginning, which maybe I was late to the theater and actually missed. But it sets up that there is uh, an alternate history. Medical discoveries have led to a uh, scenario in sort of mid-20th century in which uh, people or as you find out fairly shortly into the movie, uh, clones are being used to 
keep people alive longer. Like people are cloned and they're essentially human organ farms and they are bred and raised that way. But that's sort of the macro perspective, which is not as given to you straight up because you're following these primarily these three children at a school in England for kids who are entirely uh, these organ farm clones. And you're seeing them as their children, they're changing relationships. And as they approach adulthood and what uh, they call the stage of donation, where you start to donate your organs and reach completion or death, how they grapple with who they are, what hope they have, if any, of finding any sort of meaningful life and what they do knowing that eventually they're going to uh, complete. Yeah, I mean, so what I think I love about this movie is, so I love the book. I read the book before the movie came out because I was very excited about this movie. I remember I was living in New York. It's an Alex in- Garland screenplay, by the way. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is like, a, yeah. Um, I guess I, wa- yeah, no, I, I was just starting to come into New York to work on movies. Yeah, at the end of 2010, right. So I saw this movie, um, I saw this movie in New York. And as a matter of fact, I had this weird thing where I got to go to a Q&A at an Apple store with Kira Knightley, I believe. Or no, I'm sorry. Uh, let me correct myself. I went to go see a movie and Carrie Mulligan came into the theater because she was in New York for a Q&A. And she like said hi to all of us before the movie started, just as like a random thing. I always remember thinking that was very nice. Um, uh, so what I love about this movie is the way that Romanek shoots it, it's very distant, right? The camera is far from our characters a lot of the time. And I, I, I think it's because I think we're meant to... Yeah, the distance is is meant to kind of reflect the characters themselves, right? This idea of... They're told early on what Joel just told us, uh, almost like not a, by a teacher who gets fired the next day. Um, Sally, Sally Hawkins. Sally Hawkins. Yeah. Um, and they're reckoning with the knowledge of the fact that they are clones and they will die young because they will harvest their their little their literal organs are going to be harvested, so stuff like cancer doesn't exist anymore, right? And I will just say, the 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 way the movie works so well is is ultimately what is the kind of the final line of the movie, which is like, we're all dealing with the fact that we're going to die, right? Like at whatever point your little mind reckons with that fact, right? And you can, you know, whatever, you can go back to, to you know, controversial reference, but you can go back to what he, you know, the Alvy Singer character in Annie Hall, right? Like that, like young neurosis creeping up, like, when you start reckoning with that, that begins how you reckon with it in one way or another for the rest of your life. And these characters dealing with it in this genre way that allows for there to be this timetable that expedites everything. I think it, it, it like minds the exact emotion we're all kind of trying to avoid all the time. That's kind of, I think, what is like, developed in this movie that hits so hard by the end you know yeah no and i think um it it, it's it's interesting because i love i i love the way this movie chooses to reveal things to you um because 
it's in a way that you know for something like this that i guess you would you would call like small sci-fi right because it's science fiction but it's not really on screen necessarily um Joel, to your point, there's the opening title card, which like when it happened, I was like, beautiful. Like you gave me three lines and it was the only thing I needed to know. Right. It wasn't some giant bit of narration. There is narration in the movie, Carrie Mulligan, um, who will generally say is amazing in this movie and is amazing in general. She's great. Um, She she narrates. She sort of bookends a portion of the movie. Um, But it. Other than that, you're just given those three things to sort of kick you into this this alternate history, but you immediately pick it up and then everything else you're given right up until even the moment that Sally Hawkins explains to the children what's going on. Um, even that isn't the whole part of it because then you're still given nuggets of like, okay, where did the, these children come from? And they slowly reveal these things to you in a way that 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 gives you that sense of perspective right that closed off thing of not knowing what this world is or is like so that as they learn more about it so do you right and um and i thought that was really fascinating but also to me just my favorite it's one of my favorite things in science fiction when it's done well when when somebody can really like without a crazy amount of exposition really smooth it into the story and into the dialogue in a way that just naturally uh reveals itself to you so that you understand the universe um even if you don't understand everything about it you understand exactly enough to keep going and to remain interested um i will say i think um i mean this is definitely obviously we chose this for kira knightley she's you know obviously she's the third lead in the movie i would say it's really carrie mulligan and then andrew garfield it's kind of there their movie, I would say. Um, and Dan and I were talking a little bit about this off mic, but like kudos to Kira for taking a role like this. So basically the the trio that they play are um, Tommy, Kathy, and Ruth. Tommy is Andrew Garfield. Kathy is uh, Carrie Mulligan. And Ruth is uh, Kira Knightley. And basically when they're, you know, what we see the movie over the course of these sort of three decades, right? And when we see them when they're children who are all, I think, impeccably cast, by the way, like they all like particularly, uh, particularly the two young actors that play Carrie Mulligan and Kira Knightley. I'm like, oh, they look just like them. Like they. Yeah, uh, I thought that was kind of fascinating. But um, basically, when we see them when they're young children, clearly Tommy and Kathy have this sort of connection. Right. Kathy's very quiet and creative. Tommy's also sort of this outsider who's kind of misunderstood, has these fits of rage. Uh, there's a moment later in the movie where Charlotte Rampling kind of pegs them perfectly. It's like a nice little moment. Um, but they clearly have this sort of unspoken connection. Um, there's one point in the movie he even buys her this cassette uh, that has the song uh, never let me go on it, which is obviously where the movie gets its title. Um, and it's a, it's a nice little cue and thread that kind of comes back uh, a couple times, but then there's Ruth who is sort of the ostensibly like prettier, more popular girl that, you know, Kathy hangs around, but you know, there's that very sort of like 
tried and true dynamic between the two of them and Ruth essentially kind of slips in at one point and and kind of goes for Tommy and he sort of takes the bait and then we get a little bit more voiceover from Carrie Mulligan sort of explaining that they got together and then they never separated and then they wound up leaving uh, their boarding school and going out to uh, what are called the cottages where they all sort of live in this interim space where they're waiting for their donations and um and Kira Knightley and Andrew Garfield are still continuing their relationship, right? And so it's it's really kind of a thankless role for Knightley. Like there isn't um there isn't uh, obviously a ton of screen time for her in the movie compared to the other the other two actors. And I mean it's just obviously like it's she, you know, she's just remarkably shitty, right? Um in terms of the the way she behaves towards uh, Carrie Mulligan in particular um, as this sort of love triangle sort of keeps going. And I kept thinking like, I kept wonder, I kept waiting for the moment, right? Like I kept waiting for like, okay, like why would she take this role? Because like, and I mentioned to you, Dan, like there's prob there's a world where if this gets made in 05, right? Hypothetically or something, she wants the Carrie Mulligan role, Right. And, and she, you know, she takes this role instead. And I think it really suits her. I think she does a really great job. Um, and the moment that she gets to actually reflect on her character, uh, near the third act of the movie is like when it clicked, I was like, oh yeah, no, cause she's great. And this is a great little moment. And like in the span of like three scenes, as you see her later in the movie and I won't, I won't really spoil it, but as you see her later in the movie, she's given a chance to reflect on the way that she behaves and the matter of factness of it, um, is really, uh, it's like devastating and painful, but like really sweet and wonderful. And to your point, Dan, I, it's just an example of the way this movie finds a way to just cut right into that thing about dying and mortality and living mm. life that we like try and ignore. And I think Kira's moment kind of encapsulates that really perfectly. I'd like you to forgive me. I didn't expect you to. Forgive you for what? Keeping you and Tommy apart. Should have been you two together. I always knew it. As far back as I can remember. It, w- it wasn't just because of the rumours about deferrals. It was because I was jealous. You had real love and I didn't and I didn't want to be the one that was left alone. It's the worst thing I ever did. And now I want to put it right. I think I can see the same thing in that scene. I think the compressed nature of their personal timelines that you mentioned, Dan, they have to reckon with so much so quickly. And at first, her approach is 
uh, you know, wanting sort of out of insecurity to uh, be popular. Um, she's jealous and defensive and lashes out really cruelly at Carrie Mulligan's character. But within this system, of, of course, she's clinging to this relationship that she has with Andrew Garfield because, you know, that's all she has. She has no future, no real personhood. And it's it's fascinating to watch how each of the characters processes that. Like Andrew Garfield's character goes uh he turns to art and self-expression and is still kind of hanging on to hope at different points and i think that carrie mulligan's character on first watch years ago i just was impressed by how uh self-possessed and compassionate she was and that's still there but on the second one i was uh, just so impressed by this state of grace that she lives in by seemingly having been told what she is and what she can expect, having like grieved and accepted that. And despite the the massive kind of injustice that Andrew Garfield's character especially just like seethes at that they are people in everything but name that she has accepted this and is just looking for the moments that she can appreciate and the small things that she experiences she sees as never promised and i just love that we can see this whole system and the cruelty of it like the the banality of it too um how it dehumanizes from these three people yeah no i mean and that but banality is a great word i think and i think look i think one of the reasons this movie ultimately did get somewhat mixed reviews at the time of its release and didn't get really any sort of awards notices is because i think it's a it's a brave film in a way and look romanek mark romanek is an interesting filmmaker he's only made two features he's made a lot of music videos and a lot of other things he's a very from the director of taylor swift's shake it off Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, he, yeah, he's an amazing visual stylist and this is obviously his, his other movie one hour photo um, is way more of a kind of a genre thriller with a lot of fun, uh, you know, not unlike a Tony Scott, a lot of fun camera, you know, techniques, film stocks, what have you. This just is a formally beautiful looking movie with an amazing palette, but it's like you're saying, it's really trying to get to the essence of like, look, there is something really, really sad about being alive. Right. And, and, you know, you can live to be 80 and you, and what's funny is, um, this was not one of our B-sides, but I watched for the first time seeking a friend for the end of the world, uh, which is the Lorene's, uh, Scafaria movie with Keira Knightley and Steve Carell, which is about, the world, like there's an asteroid hurtling towards Earth and Keira Knightley and Steve Carell basically live in the same building and end up becoming connected in the final weeks before the end of the world. And they literally verbalize at the end of that movie what Never Let Me Go is about. This idea of like, they're basically like, 
uh, we only just met. There isn't enough time. And Steve Carell says there would have never been enough time. And I think that is what this movie is essentially tapping into. Mm. And, you know, because Kazuo Ichiguro, he wrote The Remains of the Day as well. I mean, the, 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 the look, there's an anglophileness to this movie too. This idea, I mean, I love shit like this. Like, I love, I love, and Jane Eyre's like this, where it's like, we are going to live our lives and do our best. And then at the end, we are going to say, why did we do it like this? You know, like this, like, very, <laughs> and like, and when Andrew Garfield has a moment at the end of this movie that you would argue, like, you could say it's over the top and what, but the beauty of the way Romanek does, and Alex Garland wrote the script, like Connor said, the way they frame it, the moment with uh, Garfield at the end is so cathartic for you as a viewer sure. because you get it once and it's like, yeah. and it's, it is the feeling that you have been feeling that you know they have been feeling and the camera gets closer for a moment, right? Like there's, you, you could get really film school about it, right? Like, but it's the beauty. It's the, it's the beauty of the medium, you know? And, it, and I think in a lot of ways, it's the perfect encapsulation of like, why do we adapt great novels into movies is for exactly like an adaptation like this. It's not exactly like the novel, right? Like they make different choices here and there, but you're taking a great piece of art and you're making another great piece of art and they're different in a way, but the soul of it is the same. There is speaking of souls. There is a fucking killer Charlotte Rampling scene at the end of this movie. Oh, oh. Oh. oh, yeah, she's, she's great. I mean, and what I love, what I love about Rampling in the movie, I mean, Charlotte Rampling's a fucking treasure number one, but like, okay. So, okay. Um, and I think it's a thing that gets mined for a lot of the roles that she is in nowadays. Um, but that thing of like, she's so convinced that what she is doing is correct and that never really changes. It doesn't mean she's not necessarily affected by it or doesn't see the uh, adverse effects of like the decisions she's choosing to make. Um, so she's not necessarily like, she's not, she's not like a sociopath. It's not that she can't feel or recognize it, but she's still so committed to the idea uh, like, like she's still so okay with the idea of what it is that's going on. Um, because I think she ultimately understands like the deeper truth that Dan, you're talking about, like the, the idea of, look, you could live five days or you could live 50 years. Like it's all going to end and it's all going to be painful, um, and confusing while we're doing it. Right. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's oh God, I could talk for a million years about this movie. I, I really, really liked it. There is one scene in particular I also want to shout out that I loved. I, I liked it when I saw it, and then as the movie went on and I realized like it's further implications. But the first scene that you see Ruth and Kathy together in as children, they're like playing with these like horses, these like small horses, and Ruth is playing with one of them and is like oh, okay like you're you can't you're not gonna play with this one but like you can play with this one which is like the second best one and it's yeah. like such a perfect like rendering of the power structures that we put on each other mm. like in society just the way we like choose to like put our thumb down on certain people uh and 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 those power structures that develop in any 
like any situation, even one as sort of self-contained as sterilized as this one, like the idea yeah. that like they're still they still formulate those relationships. And I think it's uh, so painful that we have figures like Charlotte Rampling, who runs this school early in the movie, and like Sally Hawkins, like they don't treat them entirely as objects we don't have a an entirely unsympathetic villain the system is more faceless like the people we meet are trying to do even if it's a tiny amount uh some version of the right thing and yeah i think it's like the the scene that andrew garfield just sort of lets loose all his pent-up emotion and like it's not at any one specific person it's at this faceless system and i think it's just uh really effective not to have you know a, a face to this we can't see the beneficiaries of the system right uh the 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 frame is even sort of absent of like people like there are people here and there when they have like forays into the real world but often like public spaces don't have a lot of people in them it gives yeah. this sense it adds a sense of isolation um to their lives that th there's no one they can rail against and even the people who are around there's not much they can do either yeah no that's i mean that's a really good point like there i i was kept thinking that there i had never seen this movie before this was my first viewing of it and i kept thinking that there was going to be a scene and like you said dan like it's like the this is the better version of the island right like i kept thinking there was going to be a scene where they all just try and like run away and then get caught right yeah like, no that's what's great about this movie that's no yeah. and, and it doesn't yeah. have a scene like that like because right. that would that would ruin kind of exactly what you're talking about which is part of the thesis of the movie which is like it's there's no one thing that's doing this. It's just the thi it's just the doing that is the bad well, thing. Like it's and, like, yeah, and, and you know, that's like the, the villain is being. Well, <laughs> like, and, and look, and that's and not to get too whatever. You know, this is a scary time. We don't like to think too much. You know, you come to this podcast to listen about the movies we're talking about. But I will simply say, right, Char Charlotte Rampling represents ultimately in that final scene. The scariest thing about this movie, which is that, like you said, Joel, right, when you were kind of summarizing what this is about, in this world, right, essentially, the whole world has accepted that they are making human clones, harvesting them for organs till they die so that there will be no more, um, you know, lung cancer, liver cancer, blah, 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 cancer. Okay, fine. And that means that presumably thousands upon thousands of young people are being bread and then dying sad horrible deaths like n normally every year forever right and everybody's okay with it and that weird rationalization that like judgment and nuremberg -y, like you know rationalization that is kind of on the, at the edges of this movie is scary like it's scary right now as we live through what's happening you know it's scary to watch and it's scary how <laughs> how easily that can happen you know what i mean like we're, we see it in smaller pockets now you know we saw it before it just 
that idea of like convincing yourself like well look i mean we won't have cancer so maybe yeah like let let the clones die i don't know right like um so that math that kind of gets teased out in the movie is weirdly prescient right now i suppose um is so this it, your way of transitioning to the nazi movie yeah well, exactly there you go <laughs> um so yeah a, a perfect unintentional segue to our final uh, our final movie the aftermath uh which came out like we said in 2019 which interesting premise i guess i'll just i'll i'll give the premise essentially um the movie is set in 1945 in post-war germany i believe hamburg yep i'm looking here um the war has ended world war ii to be exact and Rachel Morgan, played by Kira Knightley, who is the out-and-out lead in this film, she returns um, to her home to meet her husband, Lewis, who's played by Hollywood's cuckolds, uh, Jason <laughs> Clark. And um, they haven't seen each other in a long time. He's a colonel in the British Army, and they are going to... Um, oh, and I'm sorry, actually. I'm mistaken. Rachel is... She not her home. To, she's English. She's coming to Hamburg to meet her husband, and essentially, what happens is they take over the estate of a German father, uh, which an, ar- an I mean, architect. This, yeah, yeah. This actually happens right. You know, after we won the war, um, and what this whole thing sets up is the architects slash father is alexander skarsgård and the english army's like hey we're gonna take over this house uh you can live upstairs until you go to the camps in the meantime jason clark's character is like a more liberal colonel and he's kind of like hey kira knightley maybe we let him and his daughter just live here it's their house after all the camps are horrible we're trying to rebuild this nation we should you know Lend a helping hand, blah, 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 right? That won't cause any problems. So, <laughs> Especially not when it's beautiful Alexander Skarsgård. Exactly. exactly. So, I mean, on its face, right, uh, and based on a novel of the same uh, name by, uh, I believe, Iridian Brook, um, it's a great premise for a movie, right? Like the wars ended, you know, people are alive right like some of them might have been nazis some of them maybe weren't right that there's a whole bit about finding out that exactly um i will be honest i ultimately liked this movie fine um there is a specific subplot involving um post-war kind of hitler terrorists like hitler you know hitler um what would you sympathizers. call sympathizers sympathizers yeah, thank yeah. you who are terrorizing the kind of rebuilding process there's a subplot involving that that i think is pretty bad um but all in all i did enjoy the movie and i will fully admit the quarantine probably had something to do with that i i i am realizing that, that i basically like all movies right now i watch movies <laughs> and i'm like I like movies and I like I'm, I'm watching with you, dude. I watched Sonic the Hedgehog last night and I was like, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't know the last time I watched the movie, like me and Kelly rewatched Corky Romano. Cause it was on HBO. <laughs> and I literally was like, you know, 
I don't know. Yeah, there's a little bit of homophobia in here. You know, like there's like some terrible jokes, you know, that you like you watch and you're like, oh God. But I like laughed far more than I had any right to laugh. You know what I mean? Like I was like found myself being like, Yeah, you know what, guys? Movies. Movies <laughs> are fun. Um, anyway, what did Joel, what do you think of this movie, The Aftermath? So I think I think it's it speaks to how I felt about these four movies that I was thinking, okay, well, two of these movies enraged me for the injustice done to their characters in them, and then two enraged me because they were bad. And I think this falls into the the bad category for me. I, I think yeah, it's got I the wouldn't elements. Blame you. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. also saw it two months ago, so I did not have uh, the you know, p- possible benefits of, of seeing it in quarantine. But when I saw it, <laughs> I just remember thinking by the end, th- because they have this plot where there's romance between uh, Alexander Skarsgård and Kira Knightley, and he's a German and she's married, that, okay, we're going to get a real exploration of, you know, uh what you do after the war is over and what sides people were on and what that means and i think by the end of it i I thought they didn't do enough with the setting and it could have been set at any time yes Uh, and i realized today i was like wait this oh shit the the couple was estranged because they had a dead son i forgot about the dead son and just remembered (laughs) that there was this uh possible nazi affair um so yeah, I think I think not great. Yeah, I I I'm based I I'm a little more with Dan. I think I basically liked this movie fine. Like I didn't I granted I feel but like I, that's wait, a, can I just start interrupt kind of I will say though everything Joel just said is so unbelievably right. Like no 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 it's that's what I, I was just <laughs> like, gonna say that like it's all it's that, that's the the thing about this movie yeah, is like yeah. I don't think well, I would take away from anybody who said they didn't like it. Like I think those everything you said is 100% the truth. I basically kind of digested it from a place of like, it's re- you know, it's visually competent. Um, <laughs> e- everybody, everybody in it, I think is giving fine to good performances. I actually do want to give a quick, I think Jason Clark is pretty good in this movie. And I think it would be easy for him to kind of disappear in a role like this as a joke because of like what Dan mentioned before, because he gets like cuckolded in every single movie. Um, and whereas I think he does a good job in this of not being like exceptionally shitty. Like he he is it's it's a really he he threads a really uh, fine needle because you totally understand why Kira Knightley is estranged from him and why she would maybe have an affair with another man, both emotionally and aesthetically, right? Like there's just, it's one's Jason Clark, the other's Alexander <laughs> Skarsgård, right? So it's like to- totally makes sense. But he's also drawn out to be enough of like a generally seemingly like good human that... I un- totally understand the conflict there. What doesn't do that part justice, though, is that I don't think there's enough to uh, to Skarsgård. Skarsgård? Sarsgård. Sar- Skarsgård. 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 What have I been saying? 
I don't know. It's not but Peter. Okay. It's, it's not. It's not the other Peter. Family. Anyway, it's not, it's not Peter Sarsgaard. Tarzan. Right. There's like not enough. <laughs> oh my to god. He's most right. known for. Yeah. There's not enough to Tarzan. I think uh, as a character to really get me to buy that she would straight up have an affair with him outside of the fact right. that he is exceedingly attractive. Right. I agree, and I wonder. So the the conflict that I thought this movie was pretty well setting up is that she is in an understandable place estranged from her husband in this foreign country where a lot of the locals will resent her for her privilege she's living with one who resents her for taking over their home sure um but so so what i expect to happen and what sort of is being set up is that She's going to fall for this, uh, you know, more attractive German. And what could complicate that is when you, you know, discover uh, that he is a Nazi sympathizer. Right. So to so spoil things a little bit, uh, he, he turns out to be just a regular German widower by the end. And right. I think a lot of the tension that was interesting in... Or so even some of just like the heat between them, it was interesting to see like how willing is she going to like how desperately does she want like connection and someone else to like see her for who she is in the way that she doesn't get from her husband is that she's willing to be with someone who was in some way like hardline Nazi or not like complicit. And I think you know by the end, he just turns out to be a, he's a, he's a good guy. And that's yeah, like, well, I think a it's I don't well, even because what. Yeah. what Go ahead, Dan. Well, no, I was going to say, because that uh, these are all great points. And I think in my soft defense of this movie, I think there is an admirable quality here of making a movie with this premise set during this time and choosing to subvert kind of what you would think are the – every direction you think it's going to go mm. – it doesn't go, but I think the, and yeah, I that's fair. And I admired that. Right. Um, but I think what it reveals and this, you know, is a little bit, I don't know, whatever, but I think what it reveals is sometimes going against the grain isn't the right decision. Right. Cause like I admired it. I ultimately liked the way it went, but like, look, the reason you, like you're saying, the, you know, there would be more tension in this movie if the subplot that involves the daughter that I alluded to earlier, the revelation is like that's way more in, intertwined with the actual plot, right? Like they 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 willingly choose to not go the direction you're assuming it's going to go as like this twist almost against the thriller genre to be like, no, this is basically just about good people trying to get through the tragedy of war. Right. But it decides to have that climax anyway, which is weird. Right. right. But only, but only like that climax though, only as literally only as an inflection point to get our characters like back to where they were. Right. Like, so it's very weird. It's like, that's just, I think, bad writing, if I'm if I can be frank. But like I liked so it's funny, I liked the way, and we don't need to spoil it, I like the way the movie ended, but you're yeah. totally right, Joel. Like, oh yeah, the sun died, right? You're literally like the I, Yeah, 
I like you almost don't ever learn that he died. And then at the end, you're like, oh, OK, so, so, so she does have this great scene. Like, I think her best scene for oh, me yeah. is when she's uh, sitting at the piano talking yeah. like music kind of brings them together. Skarsgård's uh, uh, wife, who he lost, used to play the piano. Her son did. And uh, yeah, like she's uh, talking about the overwhelming grief she feels like how she doesn't know how she can go on when she's sitting at the piano with um his daughter and playing uh but uh, sorry sorry kind of what you're gonna say no 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 that i mean that's a that's a good point i'm glad you brought it up because like the his his character and his performance Skarsgård, right like it's even it's such a waste because he he's so capable of pulling something like that off that like sort of one foot in one foot out thing where you like don't know where it's going to go where you could totally buy the dude as like a cold-hearted nazi sympathizer or not or straight up nazi right uh or not right and in it even with the subplot to dan's point that goes on where uh which i don't think we've explicitly said but where uh, Skarsgård's daughter, um, Freda, is you know has been sneaking out essentially, and going to see this boy Birdie, who is uh, you know is essentially a uh, Hitler sympathizer and is like you know a burgeoning you know revolutionary terrorist, right? Um, you just can't control your daughters, man. You know, next yeah. <laughs> before you know it, they're just dating. You know, Hitler sympathizer terrorists, Nazis like, with eighty-eight burned into their arms, and uh, um, classic but, rebels. But yeah, but it's so, it's, and and again to your point, Dan, it's it's that interesting thing of like that I feel like I've run into, you know, writing things occasionally where like you decide like, oh, I don't want to do the genre thing, and then you like remind yourself in not doing it, like, oh, the reason people do the genre thing is because that's way more fun to watch on screen, right? right? Exactly. And like, yeah. and like, and like <laughs> the that you know, again, I, I like where this movie winds up with its characters. And and even with the the way they reveal the sun, which I think doesn't even get explicitly revealed until that scene at the piano, there's a scene that opens the movie where she is talking with a boy on a train, and that boy is not her son. Right, like for, there was a period of time at the beginning of this movie where I was watching it. And Jason Clark was coming back from his duties. And I was like, wait, where's their son? Yeah, dude, me too. Okay. And then, it, and then by the end, I was like, oh, the son died. Like, I was, I, <laughs> yeah. I was like, they, they love straight up. Yeah. They, yeah, they basically explicitly reveal it at, at that scene in the piano, right? And and it's it's weirdly maddening. Like there's no reason not to just explicitly kind of bring it up sooner. I don't what know. If, if it's what just if the bad. movie What if the movie had just been instead of this movie, she forgot her son on the train? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> just, oh, she, actually though. She actually, comes to Hamburg and she's like, Kevin, and she yeah, just like no, there's okay. Okay. Um I, are, should we spoil it or no? Yeah, I don't. we're so far into it. I think we just got to spoil it. Yeah, okay, okay. Spoil it. Right, so they're at the train station. Just And this is to your point. It doesn't really say anything profound about the movie, but it was just something that I could not like get out of my head while I was watching it. They're at the train station, right? She she runs to the train station with Alexander Skarsgård. Right. They're, planning, they're continuing to have their plan to run away together, which like – 
Jason Clark like lets them, which like on one, which like just I, and I, will I, say, I, think I this liked is, it. I like. I no no I did too, and I think I again this goes back to my praises of his performances in this movie. He's just such a like a fucking sad sack that you're just like it, you he was believe. Too- he was too good. He was too good in the You Great just Gatsby. believe that this dude would do this and just kind <laughs> every, of like every slump Hollywood about executive. It. Like, every Hollywood executive watched The Great Gatsby and was like, yeah, George, <laughs> he played George Wilson to a T. Let's just yeah. have him do this for a decade. Literally. Um, yeah, and crazy. it's got shades to it. I mean, this is not the cuckold in Serenity, a, a movie I oh, love and recommend. Ser- oh, God, I love Serenity. Um, no, but basically, so they're at the, so they're running away, right? It's uh, Tarzan and Kira <laughs> and they're running away. They're at the train Tarzan. station and the daughter gets on the train and Kira's bag gets on the train. And then Kira's basically like, ah, I can't do it. Right. She doesn't right, go right. through with it. Oh, I know right? what you're going to, I know what you're going to say. And the entire yeah, yeah. time this is happening, Skarsgård's waiting there and he's kind of like, no, 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 you can come on. And the train's like leaving. And I literally kept repeating out loud as the scene was happening. I was like, bro, your daughter's on the train. You got to get on the train. Bro, your daughter's on the train. Bro, <laughs> yeah. your daughter is on the train. Get on the train. Like, And then it's so weird. Then Kira sees her son who she left and she's like, oh, yeah, wait, I got to get on the train too. There's my son. Right next to the daughter. <laughs> I mean, without the son, I found the ending a little maddening because I was like, oh, wait, he's not a Nazi. Oh, he's like, he accepts you. He likes you. He shows more care for you than her husband, who seemingly like was, uh, I read, trying to be such a good guy and work with the German population there that he's uh, trying to help transition to this new mode of life that he's like very sympathetic, but sometimes like ignoring his wife's needs um so i'm like okay you've got this guy he's not a nazi he's fine but then she just just goes back i was like oh but to but to this why i i, I didn't fully understand and so I, you were I fully wished, you were fully yeah. team scar yeah i was like give i eventually i was i was yeah. like I give me something about jason clark to, I, to let me understand i will uh, say this movie yeah, is steamy like it's ve- like the scenes between them, you're like, doof, yeah, these are two beautiful people. Um, it was pretty good, but I gotta say, if you want, if you want like the most steam I, of the ones I watched, I I saw Laggies and whoo, like I wouldn't have thought, but Sam Rockwell and oh, Keira yeah. Knightley, oh my god, the sexual chemistry. Well, that was I was gonna say. I mean, unless we have more to say about the aftermath, let's like, what are other Kiras as we're kind of wrapping up that we should recommend. I watched, I watched laggies as well. Uh, Joel. Um, I don't think I, uh, did you, you like laggies a lot. Did you like it a lot? I did like it a lot. Yeah. 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 She's doing a, a passable American accent, but it's, uh, I like that. It's you know different from a lot of what she's doing. It's a comedy, not a period piece. And she's sort of in this, uh, like, 20s or early 30s uh lost phase and like befriends chloe like a young chloe grace moretz and right. uh yeah I, I thought it was like very uh like a picture of a unconventional but like sweet relationship for the people uh who are in it at these like sort of transitional points in their lives yeah lynn shelton directed it and you know she's a very kind of accomplished 
filmmaker. She's made a lot of smaller movies and she's kind of, there's a show right now. Oh, oh, Little Fire, Little Fires Everywhere uh, on Hulu. She, I believe, is directing episodes of. So she's kind of making that transition to bigger, higher profile things. Um, but uh, that role, I don't know if you know this, Joel, was supposed to be played by Anne Hathaway, but Interstellar went over. So Keira Knightley took her place. Oh, in interesting. Yeah, I can see it. Um, Connor, are there any Kira Rex that you have in your back pocket um, as we're wrapping up? No, I mean the Duchess was always the was the one for me that like I feel like was sort of underseen or people, you know, maybe didn't necessarily appreciate that I had caught that I always really, really liked. And uh I say that as someone who is generally not an Anglophile. Um, but I right. I really, really love that movie. I mean, I'll 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 bit bears repeating, I'll say it again. Anna Krennan is great. Watch it. Right. Right. Um, I've seen the whole. Have you guys seen the whole? I haven't. You've seen no. it. It's kind of a. It's like a whatever little genre movie. It's um, it's basically about this group of teenagers that go into this abandoned bunker like for fun, and then they wind up getting locked in there, and sort of the things Classic. that transpire. It's uh, it, you know, it's I don't know. It's kind of a. It, yeah pretty like straightforwardly written movie like there's not i don't think there's nothing i don't think there's anything sort of exceedingly special about it but uh if you want to see younger kira in kind of just a fun little genre movie um it's you know it's not the worst watch in the world um i'll mention so i mentioned colette i mentioned a couple others i'll say that uh an indie movie called last night starring sam worthington and Kira Knightley, and also Ava Mendes. Uh, Ava Mendes. I remember liking that movie more than other people did. Um, the Edge of Love, I mentioned before, I liked that movie as well. Sienna Miller is also in that. Um, I I pretty I pretty openly recommend all three uh, Pirates movies. I think all those first three Pirates movies of all ages kind of better than they have any business. Uh, yeah, I like that. Too. I like that third one. Yeah, the third one's crazy. Um, and then I guess one I didn't see, she made a movie with uh, a period epic with uh, Michael Pitt called Silk. That's a famous, that's apparently kind of a famously, you know, not great movie um, that I was kind of hoping to get to, but uh, we did not. It's from the director of The Red Violin, which has come up before on this lovely podcast. Um I guess that's kind of it. London Boulevard's a weird one. We mentioned that before. Um, that's not that's a full. With the, that's the one with Colin Farrell, right? Yeah, not that's yeah. not a full recommendation. Do you want to say anything, Joel, about Berlin? I love you. Uh, <laughs> uh, her segment is uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good. I think it's it's a segment between her and Helen Mirren. She's working as uh, kind of an aid worker in. Uh, Berlin for uh, immigrants there. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's a little bit about a white lady's realization that she can have a good relationship with her daughter thanks to like a brown immigrant child. Like it's not really <laughs> like his uh, story. Um, I will say that uh, a lot of the vignettes are like fine to good. Um, one that is uh, tr- truly wild, um, of course, written by neil labute uh stars mickey rourke and he's kind of this sleazebag just no existing and holding court (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but like like uh fully open shirt in a like a hotel bar and he gets approached by a woman i won't spoil i don't know i mean 
I don't know if you're going to see this movie, but uh, w- what happens is is truly shocking. Um, I I could not have expected where it would go. Uh, but as far as good movies to see, oh by the way, thanks to you, thanks to this podcast, a public service, I fully skipped Collateral Beauty. Bro, oh, yeah. well, I, you know what? I was debating as you were talking, Joel. I was like. We gotta just bring it up before. We yeah, finish. just bring it up one last time. <laughs> uh, at least until we do the Kate Winslet episode or something. <laughs> what podcast did we bring Collateral Beauty up on? Even I don't. I even... think it was the Will, Will Smith. One. The Will Smith. Oh, the yeah. Will. One. Yeah. Of course, the Will one. Of course. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, look, dude. Collateral. It, Beauty I might go there eventually because around. it sounds like a ride. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's weird because you know you like Serenity, right? You have your Cats podcast. Um, mm-hmm. t- so mm-hmm. there is. A part of my brain that goes, Joel would like Collateral Beauty because it's so bonkers. There is this like cultness to it. But the truth is, and I feel like we said this on the podcast, it's kind of not, it's like an agency's idea of that movie. You know what I mean? It's like not really, it doesn't get there. Like I haven't seen Cats, but I've seen Serenity. I don't love Serenity, but like I get why people love it. I interviewed Stephen Knight and I literally asked him, I was like, hey man, so just like, tell me what you were thinking, like in a nice way. <laughs> and and he had a great answer. And like, you can read that, you know, review on the film stage. You know, it was a, he's a great interview. Um, Collateral Beauty doesn't have... I don't know. I mean, whenever you watch it, let us know. I, it doesn't have. I don't think that quite. Uh, no, of a, of it's a, really yeah. not. It, it's really not. Um, it's not bonkers enough to be amusing or digestible in that way. It's really, you, you're really only only in, in a world where you like sit down and watch it and really think about why it's insane. Does it become fully right. insane? And and it just and I imagine that frankly some isn't of worth the... that effort. Yeah, and, and and you, thankfully, uh, spoiled some of the twists for it. So I think listening to you describe it was thrilling enough that going back go. now, I'm not there sure they go. would have the same, you know, uh, wild ride effect. Um, oh, but yeah, I, in terms of other movies, I also recommend Colette Ride Hard for that one. I really enjoyed it. And... Uh, I don't know if we mentioned a dangerous method, but the David oh, Cronenberg yeah, interesting yeah, movie. Uh, interesting yeah, movie. yeah. I, at first, I wasn't sold on her Russian accent. She plays this um, woman who's a patient of uh, Carl Jung, and eventually uh, Sigmund Freud, um, played by Michael Fassbender and then Viggo Mortensen. Uh, but I, yeah, it's it's a very different performance than what she is sort of used to doing. Like, still in the genre of inappropriate relationships because she enters a relationship with uh her physician her psychiatrist uh who is carl jung but uh yeah different than a lot of her other sort of more traditional like affair in a marriage inappropriate relationship and you're you're right a very polarizing performance by her in that one um and who could forget her as as eric d snyder likes to call uh wife on phone in everest i mean we all remember the role (laughs) as worried wife on phone in everest um (laughs) so connor what uh what do you want to see from uh from kira in the future what do you think you know i was thinking about this and i i would love to see her 
in it and frankly more shit like the nutcracker like i would just love to see her given a chance to because not even to like flex her muscles right like like it's because that is i feel like a term i would usually reserve for somebody who like hasn't been given a chance to give a great performance you know kind of thing and she has and she's given great performances it's more just like i like i just more opportunities to just let herself completely go wild like uh and I and I it pains me to say like I don't want to say that means I'd want to see her in like a, a superhero movie, but I feel like realistically that would be the only kind of avenue she'd be afforded that chance. Like you know what, honestly, make her the villain in Paddington Three. Ooh, like, you know? Do you know oh. what I mean? Like 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 something like that. Like like just any kind of sort of out of the box thing that she's just allowed to give some like a just a scenery chewing fun performance because I just don't think she gets the chance to do that that often and it's fun when she does even in bad movies like The Nutcracker. What about you, Joe? What do you think? Anything? Anything we? Anything we haven't seen out of uh out of Kira yet? I think in the same vein, I'd love to see her have more fun and especially, you know, we've seen her in rom-coms. I thought she was really charming in Laggies and I liked her a lot in Begin Again, but in, yeah, a genre movie or a straight up comedy that doesn't have a, like, it's not a rom-com, but I would like to see her in the same way that, I don't know, like in Hathaway has had that ability. Like, I would love to see her in a straight up comedic role and doing something that doesn't involve because I think so many of her movies revolve around a relationship as the central like dramatic force. So something where she gets to, yeah, do more with that. And and yeah, I think kind of like you're saying, just have a lot of fun in a way that we not necessarily have seen from her in a while. Now, I will say as mine to in, in, in real life uh, answer to. Uh, Joel's want. I think we might be getting that. Uh, Camille Griffin wrote and directed a movie called Silent Night, in which she Karen Knightley's in with Annabelle Wallace and Matthew Good, and I'm sure a bunch of other people. Yeah, yeah, like Lucy Punch, Roman Griffin Davis, Lily Rose Depp. Um, in it looks like it's a Christmas comedy. An extended family comes together for a Christmas dinner in the country. Uh, I'll be there. I don't know about you guys. Um, <laughs> So that's something Kira. tells me that night won't be so silent. Hey, <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a drama. Um, so Joel, remind us where can we find you? Where can we listen to your lovely podcasting? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Joel K Arnold, and you can find the two podcasts I make, D and D and D, and Ineffable, a cat's movie podcast, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts. Quick shout out to Toast the Cat. Um, yeah, yeah. He's my co-host. Uh, my cat appropriately co-hosts it with me. And uh, <laughs> as we learned on this call, uh, you and I, Dan, both have ragdoll casts and we like held up the cats and, and showed them off. And, they're now, yeah, he's a delight. They're best friends now. We oh, can I, took, I agree took a picture. It's going to get tweeted. For oh, sure. yes, <laughs> yeah, love I it. took a picture. Don't you think I wasn't on that? And me, me and Joel both <laughs> lamented the fact that they're not lap cats and they're more they're more like snuggle yeah. cats, which is fine. That's great too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's okay. But um, it is would your be cat super if- vocal? My so your cats definitely I could I've I listen to the cats uh, movie podcast so I know and I've you, I follow uh, your social with toast and everything. Your your cat's definitely more vocal. Milo, my cat, 
has become more vocal. And it's funny, like the cutest thing he probably does is in the morning when it's time for him to get fed, he will stand on the bed and look down at me and my wife and he will put his paw on our face. He'll literally place his paw on our face and meow until we wake up. Like literally. And it's to the point where it's like, dude, okay, okay. Stop touching my face. I'm, I'm picturing up. that scene in Tree of Life with the dinosaurs. Exactly. Like he's yeah, just, just putting his on your face <laughs> and just holding it there. Um, it's, um, it's I'm maniacal. the only person to it. reference that scene in fucking 10 years. Uh, <laughs> they find ways to communicate. Like for a while with Toast, it was just like, I'm going to bite you just a little bit. And that's a good way to communicate. But I'm like, no, we can we can find better ways. It's It's cool. Exactly. Do you have anything fun coming up on the pod you want to shout out? Yeah, let's see. Uh, each episode, I mean, there's, I know you're thinking one podcast all about one movie. How does it keep going? Uh, yeah, I'm excited because basically I'm talking with uh, writers and comedians. We've had on uh, critic Christy Puchko. This week I'm releasing one with uh, Angie Han. And each time, each episode, we highlight uh, the joe lickle choice um because my name is joel <laughs> well uh, but yeah done. after i talk Love to that. um someone about a different theme whether it's taking like movies with appreciating like movies with big swings or talking all about andrew Lloyd weber or all about t.s Eliot, uh then i will highlight a cat of the week essentially and so yeah i don't know if you have a cat and you're you like your cat and are passionate about them and want to talk about your cat uh i will talk to listeners too because I don't know. Cats are just like, they're all so unique and interesting. So yeah. Oh, dude, <laughs> cats and real cats. I, I'm going to, at some point I'm getting on that podcast to talk to oh, you. Though. Please, don't, yeah. don't you worry. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me, you can follow me at DJ Mecca on Twitter. Uh, look out for future cinephile game nights. Uh, hopefully you've been watching. If you're listening now, Joel, hopefully you have either been on one if you're listening or you'll be on one soon. We'd love to get you into one of our game nights as we continue to do this during yeah. this quarantine time. We've been having fun. Um, and yeah, look for stuff I'm writing on the film stage here and there. And uh, Connor, I will leave the final words to you. Yeah, well, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Scruffy Looking. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFSB side. Uh, you can find us uh, if you're not already listening to us there. If you want to listen somewhere else, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeart. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you like. Uh, and, you know, listen to some of our older episodes if you're new to the feed. We got a really great backlog. Um, and with that said, as we, you know, as we continue on and things are a little crazy, uh, take care of yourselves daily and nightly.